Because students leave school without financial skills, millions of educated people pursue their profession successfully, but later find themselves struggling financially. They work harder, but don't get ahead. What's missing from their education is not how to make money, but how to spend money. What to do after you make it? It's called financial aptitude. What to do with the money once you make it? How to keep people from taking it from you? How long you keep it, and how hard that money works for you. Most people cannot tell why they struggle financially, because they don't understand cash flow. A person can be highly educated, professionally successful, and financially illiterate. These people often work harder than they need to, because they learned how to work hard, but not how to have their money work for them. The moving picture show of hardworking people has a set pattern. Recently married, the happy, highly educated young couple move in together in one of their cramped rented apartments. Immediately, they realize that they're saving money, because two can live as cheaply as one. The problem is, the apartment is cramped. They decide to save money to buy their dream home so they can have kids. They now have two incomes, and they begin to focus on their careers. Their incomes begin to increase. As their incomes go up. Their expenses go up as well, so there is little or no money to flow into the asset box. This means the only income they get comes from their jobs. The number one expense for most people is taxes. Many people think it's income tax, but for most Americans, their highest tax is Social Security. As an employee, it appears as if the Social Security tax, combined with the Medicare tax rate, Is roughly 7.5 percent, but it's really 15 percent, since the employer must match the Social Security amount. In essence, it is money the employer cannot pay you. On top of that, you still have to pay income tax on the amount deducted from your wages for Social Security tax, income you never receive, because it went directly to Social Security through withholding. Then their liabilities go up. This is best demonstrated by going back to the young couple. As a result of their incomes going up, they decide to go out and buy the house of their dreams. Once in their house, they have a new tax, called property tax. Then they buy a new car, new furniture, and new appliances to match their new house. All of a sudden, they wake up, and their liabilities column is full of mortgage debt and credit card debt. They're now trapped in the rat race. A child comes along. They work harder. The process repeats itself: more money and higher taxes, also called bracket creep. A credit card comes in the mail. They use it. It maxes out. A loan company calls and says their greatest asset, their home, has appreciated in value. The company offers a bill consolidation loan. Because their credit is so good, and tells them the intelligent thing to do is clear off the high-interest consumer debt by paying off their credit card. And besides, interest on their home is a tax deduction. They go for it, and pay off those high-interest credit cards. They breathe a sigh of relief. Their credit cards are paid off. They've now folded their consumer debt into their home mortgage. 
Their payments go down because they extend their debt over 30 years. It is the smart thing to do. Their neighbor calls to invite them to go shopping. The Memorial Day sale is on. A chance to save some money. They say to themselves, I won't buy anything, I'll just go look. But just in case they find something, they tuck that clean credit card inside their wallet. I run into this young couple all the time. Their names change, but their financial dilemma is the same. They come to one of my talks to hear what I have to say. They ask me, can you tell us how to make more money? Their spending habits have caused them to seek more income. They don't even know that the trouble is really how they choose to spend the money they do have. And that is the real cause of their financial struggle. It's caused by financial illiteracy and not understanding the difference between an asset and a liability. More money seldom solves someone's money problems. Intelligence solves problems. There's a saying a friend of mine says over and over to people in debt. If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. The poor and middle class all too often allow the power of money to control them. By simply getting up and working harder, failing to ask themselves if what they do makes sense, they shoot themselves in the foot as they leave for work every morning. By not fully understanding money, the vast majority of people allow the awesome power of money to control them. The power of money is used against them. By the time Mike and I were 16 years old, we began to have problems in school. We were not bad kids. We just began to separate from the crowd. We worked for Mike's dad after school and on the weekends. Mike and I often spent hours after work just sitting at a table with his dad while he held meetings with his bankers, attorneys, accountants, brokers, investors, managers, and employees. We learned more sitting at his meetings than we did in all our years of school, college included. Mike's dad was not school-educated, but he was financially educated and successful as a result. He used to tell us over and over again, an intelligent person hires people who are more intelligent than they are. So Mike and I had the benefit of spending hours listening to, and in the process learning from, intelligent people. But because of this, both Mike and I just could not go along with the standard dogma that our teachers preached. Occasionally, Mike or I would ask our teachers how what we studied was applicable, or we asked why we never studied money and how it worked. To the latter question, we often got the answer that money was not important, that if we excelled in our education, the money would follow. The more we knew about the power of money, the more distant we grew from the teachers and our classmates. My highly educated dad never pressured me about my grades. I often wondered why. But we did begin to argue about money. By the time I was 16, I probably had a far better foundation with money than both my mom and dad. I could keep books. I listened to tax accountants, corporate attorneys, bankers, real estate brokers, investors, and so forth. My dad talked to teachers. One day, my dad was telling me why our home was his greatest investment. A not-too-pleasant argument took place when I showed him why I thought a house was not a good investment. The argument illustrated the difference in perception between my rich dad and my poor dad when it came to their homes. Poor dad thought his house was an asset, 
and listed it in the asset box. And the rich dad thought it was a liability and put his home in the liability box. I remember when I drew a diagram for my dad showing him the direction of cash flow. I also showed him the ancillary expenses that went along with owning the home. A bigger home meant bigger expenses, and the cash flow kept going out through the expense column. Today I am still challenged on the idea of a house not being an asset, and I know that for many people it's their dream as well as their largest investment. And owning your own home is better than nothing. I simply offer an alternate way of looking at this popular dogma. My wife and I would love a bigger, more flashy house to impress the Joneses, but we know it is not an asset. It's a liability since it takes money out of our pocket. So here's the argument I put forth. I really do not expect most people to agree with it because a nice home is an emotional thing. And when it comes to money, high emotions tend to lower financial intelligence. When it comes to houses, I point out that most people work all their lives paying for a home they never own. In other words, most people buy a new house every so many years, each time incurring a new 30-year loan to pay off the previous one. Even though people receive a tax deduction for interest on mortgage payments, they pay for all their other expenses with after-tax dollars, even after they pay off their mortgage. Then there are property taxes. My wife's parents were shocked when the property taxes on their home went to $1,000 a month. This was after they'd retired, so the increase put a strain on their retirement budget, and they felt forced to move. Also, Houses do not always go up in value. I still had friends who owe a million dollars for a home that will today sell for only 700000 Finally, the greatest losses of all are those from missed opportunities. If all your money is tied up in your house, you may be forced to work harder because your money continues blowing out of the expense column instead of adding to the asset column. The classic middle-class cash flow pattern. If a young couple would put more money into their asset column early on, their later years would get easier, especially as they prepared to send their children to college. Their assets would have grown and would be available to help cover expenses. All too often, a house only serves as a vehicle for incurring a home equity loan to pay for mounting expenses. In summary, the end result in making a decision to own a house that is too expensive in lieu of starting an investment portfolio early on, impacts an individual in at least the following three ways. Number one, loss of time, during which other assets could have grown in value. Number two, loss of additional capital, which could have been invested instead of paying for high-maintenance expenses related directly to the home. Number three, loss of education. Too often, people count their house, savings, and retirement plan as all they have in their asset column. Because they have no money to invest, they simply do not invest. This costs them investment experience. Most never become what the investment world calls a sophisticated investor. And the best investments are usually first sold to sophisticated investors, who then turn around and sell them to the people playing it safe. My educated dad's personal financial statement best demonstrates the life of someone in the rat race. His expenses seem to always keep up with his income. 
never allowing him to invest in assets. As a result, his liabilities, such as his mortgage and credit card debts, are larger than his assets. My rich dad's personal financial statement, on the other hand, reflects the results of a life dedicated to investing and minimizing liabilities. His assets greatly exceed his liabilities. A review of my rich dad's financial statement is why the rich get richer. The asset column generates more than enough income to cover expenses, with the balance reinvested into the asset column. The asset column continues to grow, and therefore the income it produces grows with it. The result being, the rich get richer. The middle class finds itself in a constant state of financial struggle. Their primary income is through wages, and as their wages increase, so do their taxes. Their expenses tend to increase in equal increments as their wages increase. Hence the phrase, the rat race. They treat their home as their primary asset instead of investing in income-producing assets. Remember, the most important rule is to know the difference between an asset and a liability. Once you understand the difference. Concentrate your efforts on only buying income-generating assets. That's the best way to get started on a path to becoming rich. Keep doing that, and your asset column will grow. Focus on keeping liabilities and expenses down. This will make more money available to continue pouring into the asset column. This pattern of treating your home as an investment, and the philosophy that a pay raise means you can buy a larger home or spend more. Is the foundation of today's debt-ridden society. This process of increased spending throws families into greater debt, and into more financial uncertainty, even though they may be advancing in their jobs and receiving pay raises on a regular basis. This is high-risk living, caused by weak financial education. As an employee who's also a homeowner, your working efforts are generally as follows: you work for someone else. Most people working for a paycheck are making the owner or the shareholders richer. Your efforts and success will help provide for the owner's success and retirement. Next, you work for the government. The government takes its share from your paycheck before you even see it. By working harder, you simply increase the amount of taxes taken by the government. Most people work from January to May just for the government. And finally. You work for the bank. After taxes, your next largest expense is usually your mortgage and credit card debt. The problem with simply working harder is that each of these three levels takes a greater share of your increased efforts. You need to learn how to have your increased efforts benefit you and your family directly. Once you've decided to concentrate on minding your own business, how do you set your goals? For most people, they must keep their profession and rely on their wages to fund their acquisition of assets. As their assets grow, how do they measure the extent of their success? When does someone realize that they are rich, that they have wealth? As well as having my own definitions for assets and liabilities, I also have my own definition for wealth. Actually, I borrowed it from a man named Buckminster Fuller. Some people call him a quack, and others call him a living genius. Years ago, he got all the architects buzzing 
because he applied for a patent in 1961 for something called a geodesic dome. But in the application, Fuller also said something about wealth. It was pretty confusing at first, but after reading it for a while, it began to make some sense. Wealth is a person's ability to survive so many number of days forward. Or, if I stopped working today, how long could I survive? Unlike net worth, the difference between your assets and liabilities, which is often filled with a person's expensive junk and opinions of what things are worth, this definition creates the possibility for developing a truly accurate measurement. I could now measure and really know where I was in terms of my goal to become financially independent. Although net worth often includes these non-cash-producing assets, like stuff you bought that now sits in your garage, wealth measures how much money your money is making, and therefore your financial survivability. Wealth is the measure of the cash flow from the asset column compared with the expense column. Let's use an example. Let's say I have a cash flow from my asset column of $1,000 a month, and I have monthly expenses of $2,000. What's my wealth? Let's go back to Buckminster Fuller's definition. Using his definition, how many days forward can I survive? And let's assume a 30-day month. By that definition, I have enough cash flow for half a month. When I have achieved $2,000 a month cash flow from my assets, then I will be wealthy. I now have income generated from assets each month that fully covers my monthly expenses. If I want to increase my expenses, I first must increase my cash flow from assets to maintain this level of wealth. Take notice that it's at this point that I am no longer dependent on my wages. I have focused on and been successful in building an asset column that's made me financially independent. If I quit my job today, I would be able to cover my monthly expenses with the cash flow from my assets. My next goal would be to have the excess cash flow from my assets reinvested into the asset column. The more money that goes into my asset column, the more my asset column grows. The more my assets grow, the more my cash flow grows. And as long as I keep my expenses less than the cash flow from these assets, I will grow richer, with more and more income from sources other than my physical labor. As this reinvestment continues, I am well on my way to being rich. The actual definition of rich is in the eye of the beholder. You can never be too rich. Just remember this simple observation. The rich buy assets. The poor only have expenses. The middle class buys liabilities they think are assets. So how do I start minding my own business? What's the answer? Listen to the founder of McDonald's. Lesson 3. Mind Your Own Business In 1974, Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, was asked to speak at the MBA class at the University of Texas at Austin. A dear friend of mine, Keith Cunningham, was a student in that MBA class. After a powerful and inspiring talk, the class adjourned. And the students asked Ray if he would join them at their favorite hangout to have a few beers. Ray graciously accepted. What business am I in? Ray asked, 
once the group had all their beers in hand. Everyone laughed, said Keith. Most of the MBA students thought Ray was just fooling around. No one answered, so Ray asked the question again. What business do you think I'm in? The students laughed again. And finally, one brave soul yelled out, Ray, who in the world does not know that you're in the hamburger business? Ray chuckled. That's what I thought you'd say. He paused and then quickly said, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not in the hamburger business. My business is real estate. McDonald's today is the largest single owner of real estate in the world, owning even more than the Catholic Church. Today, McDonald's owns some of the most valuable intersections and street corners in America, as well as in other parts of the world. Keith said it was one of the most important lessons in his life. Today, Keith owns car washes, but his business is the real estate under those car washes. The previous chapter ended with a statement illustrating that most people work for everyone but themselves. They work first for the owners of the company, then for the government through taxes, and finally for the bank that owns their mortgage. As a young boy, we did not have a McDonald's nearby. Yet my rich dad was responsible for teaching Mike and me the same lesson that Ray Kroc talked about at the University of Texas. It is secret number three of the rich. The secret is, mind your own business. Financial struggle is often directly the result of people working all their life for someone else. Many people will have nothing at the end of their working days. Our current educational system focuses on preparing today's youth to get good jobs by developing scholastic skills. Their lives will revolve around their wages, or, as described earlier, their income column. And, after developing scholastic skills, they go on to higher levels of schooling to enhance their professional abilities. They study to become engineers, scientists, cooks, police officers, artists, writers, and so on. These professional skills allow them to enter the workforce and work for money. There's a big difference between your profession and your business. Often I ask people, what's your business? And they will say, oh, I'm a banker. Then I ask them if they own the bank. And they usually respond, no, I work there. In that instance, they've confused their profession with their business. Their profession may be a banker, but they still need their own business. Ray Kroc was clear on the difference between his profession and his business. His profession was always the same. He was a salesman. At one time, he sold mixers for milkshakes, and soon thereafter, he was selling hamburger franchises. But while his profession was selling hamburger franchises, his business was the accumulation of income-producing real estate. To become financially secure, a person needs to mind their own business. Your business revolves around your asset column, as opposed to your income column. As stated earlier, the number one rule is to know the difference between an asset and a liability, and to buy assets. The rich focus on their asset columns, while everyone else focuses on their income statements. That's why we hear so often, I need a raise. If only I had a promotion. I'm going back to school to get more training so I can get a better job. I'm going to work overtime. Maybe I can get a second job. 
I'm quitting in two weeks. I've found a job that pays more. In some circles, these are sensible ideas. Yet if you listen to Ray Kroc, you're still not minding your own business. These ideas all still focus on the income column and will only help a person become more financially secure if the additional money is used to purchase income-generating assets. The primary reason the majority of the poor and middle class are fiscally conservative, which means I can't afford to take risks, is that they have no financial foundation. They have to cling to their jobs. They have to play it safe. When downsizing became the in thing to do, millions of workers found out that their largest so-called asset, their home, was eating them alive. Their asset, called a house, still cost them money every month. Their car, another asset, was eating them alive. The golf clubs in the garage that cost $1,000 were not worth $1,000 anymore. Without job security, they had nothing to fall back on. What they thought were assets could not help them survive in a time of financial crisis. So many people have put themselves in deep financial trouble when they run short of income. To raise cash, they sell their assets. First, their personal assets can generally be sold for only a fraction of the value that's listed in their personal balance sheet. Or, if there's a gain on the sale of the assets, they're taxed on the gain. So again, the government takes its share of the gain, thus reducing the amount available to help them out of debt. That's why I say someone's net worth is often worth less than they think. Start minding your own business. Keep your daytime job, but start buying real assets, not liabilities or personal effects that have no real value once you get them home. A new car loses nearly 25% of the price you pay for it the moment you drive it off the lot. It's not a true asset, even if your banker lets you list it as one. My $400 new titanium driver was worth $150 the moment I teed off. For adults, keep your expenses low, reduce your liabilities, and diligently build a base of solid assets. For young people who've not yet left home, it's important for parents to teach them the difference between an asset and a liability. Get them to start building a solid asset column before they leave home, get married, buy a house, have kids, and get stuck in a risky financial position, clinging to a job and buying everything on credit. I see so many young couples who get married and trap themselves into a lifestyle that will not let them get out of debt for most of their working years. For most people, just as the last child leaves home, the parents realize they have not adequately prepared for retirement and they begin to scramble to put some money away. Then their own parents become ill and they find themselves with new responsibilities. So, what kind of assets am I suggesting that you or your children acquire? In my world, real assets fall into several different categories. First, businesses that do not require my presence. I own them, but they're managed or run by other people. If I have to work there, it's not a business. It becomes my job. Then come categories such as stocks, bonds, mutual funds, income-generating real estate, notes or IOUs, royalties from intellectual properties such as music, scripts, patents, and finally anything else that has value, produces income, 
or appreciates and has a ready market. As a young boy, my educated dad encouraged me to find a safe job. My rich dad, on the other hand, encouraged me to begin acquiring assets that I loved. If you don't love it, you won't take care of it. I collect real estate simply because I love buildings and land. I love shopping for them. I could look at them all day long. When problems arise, the problems are not so bad that it changes my love for real estate. For people who hate real estate, they shouldn't buy it. I love stocks of small companies, especially startups. The reason is that I am an entrepreneur, not a corporate person. In my early years, I worked in large organizations, such as Standard Oil of California, the U.S. Marine Corps, and Xerox Corporation. I enjoyed my time with those organizations and have fond memories, but I know deep down I'm not a company man. I like starting companies, not running them. So my stock buys are usually of small companies, and sometimes I even start the company and take it public. Fortunes are made in new stock issues, and I love the game. Many people are afraid of small cap companies and call them risky, and they are. But risk is always diminished. If you love what the investment is, understand it, and know the game. For years, even while I was with the Marine Corps and Xerox, I did what my rich dad recommended. I kept my daytime job, but I still minded my own business. I was active in my asset column. I traded real estate and small stocks. Rich dad always stressed the importance of financial literacy. The better I was at understanding the accounting and cash management the better I would be at analyzing investments and eventually starting and building my own company. I would not encourage anyone to start a company unless they really want to. Knowing what I know about running a company, I would not wish that task on anyone. There are times when people cannot find employment where starting a company is a solution for them. The odds are against success. Nine out of ten companies fail in five years. Of those that survive the first five years, nine out of every ten of those eventually fail as well. So only if you really have the desire to own your own company do I recommend it. Otherwise, keep your daytime job and mind your own business. When I say mind your own business, I mean to build and keep your asset column strong. Once a dollar goes into it, never let it come out. Think of it this way. Once a dollar goes into your asset column, it becomes your employee. The best thing about money is that it works 24 hours a day and can work for generations. Keep your daytime job, be a great, hardworking employee, but keep building that asset column. As your cash flow grows, you can buy some luxuries. An important distinction is that rich people buy luxuries last while the poor and middle class tend to buy luxuries first. The poor and middle class often buy luxury items such as big houses, diamonds, furs, jewelry, or boats, because they want to look rich. They look rich, but in reality they just get deeper in debt on credit. The old money people, the long-term rich, built their asset column first. Then the income generated from the asset column bought their luxuries. The poor and middle class buy luxuries with their own sweat, blood, and children's inheritance. 
a true luxury is a reward for investing in and developing a real asset. For example, when my wife and I had extra money coming from our apartment houses, she went out and bought her Mercedes. It didn't take any extra work or risk on her part because the apartment house bought the car. She did, however, have to wait for it for four years while the real estate investment portfolio grew and finally began throwing off enough extra cash flow to pay for the car. But the luxury, the Mercedes, was a true reward because she had proved she knew how to grow her asset column. That car now means a lot more to her than simply another pretty car. It means she used her financial intelligence to afford it. What most people do is they impulsively go out and buy a new car or some other luxury on credit. They may feel bored and just want a new toy. Buying a luxury on credit often causes a person to sooner or later actually resent that luxury because the debt on the luxury becomes a financial burden. After you've taken the time and invested in and built your own business, you're now ready to add the magic touch, the biggest secret of the rich. The secret that puts the rich way ahead of the pack. The reward at the end of the road for diligently taking the time to mind your own business. Lesson 4. The History of Taxes and the Power of Corporations I remember in school being told the story of Robin Hood and his merry men. My school teacher thought it was a wonderful story of a romantic hero, a Kevin Costner type, who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. My rich dad did not see Robin Hood as a hero. He called Robin Hood a crook. Robin Hood may be long gone, but his followers live on. How often I still hear people say, Why don't the rich pay for it? Or, The rich should pay more in taxes and give it to the poor. It's this idea of Robin Hood, or taking from the rich to give to the poor, that has caused the most pain for the poor and the middle class. The reason the middle class is so heavily taxed is because of the Robin Hood ideal. The real reality is that the rich are not taxed. It's the middle class who pays for the poor, especially the educated, upper-income middle class. Again, to understand fully how things happen, we need to look at the historical perspective. We need to look at the history of taxes. Although my highly educated dad was an expert on the history of education, my rich dad fashioned himself as an expert on the history of taxes. Rich dad explained to Mike and me that in England and America originally, there were no taxes. Occasionally, there were temporary taxes levied in order to pay for wars. The king or the president would put the word out and ask everyone to chip in. Taxes were levied in Britain for the fight against Napoleon from 1799 to 1816. And in America, taxes were levied to pay for the Civil War from 1861 to 1865. In 1874, England made income tax a permanent levy on its citizens. In 1913, an income tax became permanent in the United States with the adoption of the 16th Amendment to the Constitution. What these historical dates fail to reveal is that both of these taxes were initially levied against only the rich. It was this point that Rich Dad wanted Mike and me to understand. He explained that the idea of taxes was made popular 
and accepted by the majority by telling the poor and the middle class that taxes were created only to punish the rich. This is how the masses voted for the law, and it became constitutionally legal. Although it was intended to punish the rich, in reality it wound up punishing the very people who voted for it, the poor and the middle class. Once government got a taste of money, the appetite grew, said Rich Dad. Your dad and I are exactly opposite. He's a government bureaucrat, and I'm a capitalist. We get paid, and our success is measured on opposite behaviors. He gets paid to spend money and hire people. The more he spends and the more people he hires, the larger his organization becomes. In the government, the larger his organization, the more he's respected. On the other hand, within my organization, the fewer people I hire and the less money I spend, the more I'm respected by my investors. That's why I don't like government people. They have different objectives from most business people. As the government grows, more and more tax dollars will be needed to support it. As I said, the passage of taxes was only possible because the masses believed in the Robin Hood theory of economics, which was to take from the rich and give to everyone else. The problem was that the government's appetite for money was so great that taxes soon needed to be levied on the middle class, and from there it kept trickling down. The rich, on the other hand, saw an opportunity. They did not play by the same set of rules. As I've stated, the rich already knew about corporations, which became popular in the days of sailing ships. The rich created the corporation as a vehicle to limit their risk to the assets of each voyage. The rich put their money into a corporation to finance the voyage. The corporation would then hire a crew to sail to the New World to look for treasures. If the ship was lost, the crew lost their lives, but the loss to the rich would be limited only to the money they invested for that particular voyage. It's the knowledge of the power of the legal structure of the corporation that really gives the rich a vast advantage over the poor and the middle class. Having two fathers teaching me, one a socialist and the other a capitalist, I quickly began to realize that the philosophy of the capitalist made more financial sense to me. It seemed to me that the socialists ultimately penalized themselves due to their lack of financial education. No matter what the take-from-the-rich crowd came up with, the rich always found a way to outsmart them. That is how taxes were eventually levied on the middle class. The rich outsmarted the intellectuals solely because they understood the power of money, a subject not taught in schools. How did the rich outsmart the intellectuals? Once the take-from-the-rich tax was passed, cash started flowing into government coffers. Initially, people were happy. Money was handed out to government workers and the rich. It went to government workers in the form of jobs and pensions. It went to the rich via their factories receiving government contracts. The government became a large pool of money, but the problem was the fiscal management of that money. There really is no recirculation. In other words, the government policy, if you were a government bureaucrat, was to avoid having excess money. If you failed to spend your allotted funding, you risked losing it in the next budget. You'd certainly not be recognized for being efficient. Business people, on the other hand, 
are rewarded for having excess money and are recognized for their efficiency. As this cycle of growing government spending continued, the demand for money increased, and the tax the rich idea was now being adjusted to include lower income levels, down to the very people who voted it in, the poor and the middle class. True capitalists used their financial knowledge to simply find a way to escape. They headed back to the protection of a corporation. A corporation protects the rich. But what many people who've never formed a corporation do not know is that a corporation is not really a thing. A corporation is merely a file folder with some legal documents in it, sitting in some attorney's office registered with a state government agency. It's not a big building with the name of the corporation on it. It's not a factory or a group of people. A corporation is merely a legal document that creates a legal body without a soul. The wealth of the rich was once again protected. Once again, the use of corporations became popular once the permanent income laws were passed because the income tax rate of the corporation was less than the individual income tax rates. In addition, as I said earlier, certain expenses could be paid with pre-tax dollars within the corporation. This war between the haves and the have-nots has been going on for hundreds of years. It's the take-from-the-rich crowd versus the rich. The battle is waged whenever and wherever laws are made. The battle will go on forever. The problem is, the people who lose are the uninformed the ones who get up every day and diligently go to work and pay taxes. If they only understood the way the rich play the game, they could play it too. Then they would be on their way to their own financial independence. This is why I cringe every time I hear a parent advise their children to go to school so they can find a safe, secure job. An employee with a safe, secure job without financial aptitude has no escape. Average Americans today work five to six months for the government before they make enough to cover their taxes. In my opinion, that is a long time. The harder you work, the more you pay the government. That's why I believe that the idea of take from the rich backfired on the very people who voted it in. Every time people try to punish the rich, the rich don't simply comply, they react. They have the money, power, and intent to change things. They do not just sit there and voluntarily pay more taxes. They search for ways to minimize their tax burden. They hire smart attorneys and accountants and persuade politicians to change laws or create legal loopholes. They have the resources to affect change. The poor and the middle class do not have the same resources. They sit there, and let the government's needles enter their arm and allow the blood donation to begin. Today, I'm constantly shocked at the number of people who pay more taxes or take fewer deductions simply because they are afraid of the government. And I do know how frightening and intimidating a government tax agent can be. I have had friends who have had their businesses shut down and destroyed only to find out it was a mistake on the part of the government. I realize all that. But the price of working from January to mid-May is a high price to pay for that intimidation. My poor dad never fought back. My rich dad didn't either. He just played the game smarter, and he did it through corporations. The biggest secret of the rich.
My highly educated dad always encouraged me to seek a good job with a strong corporation. He spoke of the virtues of working your way up the corporate ladder. He didn't understand that by relying solely on a paycheck from a corporate employer, I would be a docile cow ready for milking. When I told my rich dad of my father's advice, he only chuckled. Why not own the ladder? was all he said. As a young boy, I didn't understand what Rich Dad meant by owning my own corporation. It was an idea that seemed impossible and intimidating. Although I was excited by the idea, my youth would not let me envision the possibility that grown-ups would someday work for a company I would own. The point is, if not for my Rich Dad, I would have probably followed my educated dad's advice. It was merely the occasional reminder of my rich dad that kept the idea of owning my own corporation alive and kept me on a different path. By the time I was 15 or 16, I knew I was not going to continue down the path my educated dad was recommending. I did not know how I was going to do it, but I was determined not to head in the direction most of my classmates were heading. That decision changed my life. It was not until I was in my mid-twenties that my rich dad's advice began to make more sense. I was just out of the Marine Corps and working for Xerox. I was making a lot of money, but every time I looked at my paycheck, I was always disappointed. The deductions were so large, and the more I worked, the greater the deductions. As I became more successful, my bosses talked about promotions and raises. It was flattering, but I could hear my rich dad asking me in my ear, Who are you working for? Who are you making rich? In 1974, while still an employee for Xerox, I formed my first corporation and began minding my own business. There were already a few assets in my asset column, but now I was determined to focus on making it bigger. Those paychecks with all the deductions made all the years of my rich dad's advice make total sense. I could see the future if I followed my educated dad's advice. Many employers feel that advising their workers to mind their own business is bad for business. I'm sure it can be for certain individuals, but for me, focusing on my own business, developing assets, made me a better employee. I now had a purpose. I came in early and worked diligently, amassing as much money as possible so I could begin investing in real estate. Hawaii was just set to boom, and there were fortunes to be made. The more I realized we were in the beginning stages of a boom, the more Xerox machines I sold. The more I sold, the more money I made, and of course, the more deductions there were from my paycheck. It was inspiring. I wanted out of the trap of being an employee so badly that I worked harder, not less. By 1978, I was consistently one of the top five salespeople in sales, often number one. I badly wanted out of the rat race. In less than three years, I was making more in my own little corporation, which was a real estate holding company, than I was making at Xerox. And the money I was making in my asset column in my own corporation was money working for me, not me pounding on doors selling copiers. My rich dad's advice made much more sense. Soon the cash flow from my properties was so strong that my company bought me my first Porsche. My fellow Xerox salespeople thought I was spending my commissions. I wasn't. I was investing my commissions in assets. My money was working hard to make more money. 
Each dollar in my asset column was a great employee, working hard to make more employees and buy the boss a new Porsche with before-tax dollars. I began to work harder for Xerox. The plan was working, and my Porsche was the proof. By using the lessons I learned from my rich dad, I was able to get out of the proverbial rat race of being an employee at an early age. It was made possible because of the strong financial knowledge I'd acquired through these lessons. Without this financial knowledge, which I call my financial IQ, my road to financial independence would have been much more difficult. I now teach others through financial seminars in the hope that I may share my knowledge with them. Whenever I do my talks, I remind people that financial IQ is made up of knowledge from four broad areas of expertise. The first area is accounting, what I call financial literacy, a vital skill if you want to build an empire. The more money you're responsible for, the more accuracy is required or the house comes tumbling down. This is the left brain side, or the details. Financial literacy is the ability to read and understand financial statements. This ability allows you to identify the strengths and weaknesses of any business. The second is investing, what I call the science of money-making money. This involves strategies and formulas. This is the right brain side, or the creative side. Next, you must obtain expertise in understanding markets, the science of supply and demand. There's a need to know the technical aspects of the market, which is emotion-driven. The Tickle Me Elmo doll during Christmas 1996 is a case of technical or emotion-driven market. The other market factor is the fundamental or the economic sense of an investment. Does an investment make sense, or does it not make sense, based on the current market conditions? Finally, you must understand the law. For instance, utilizing a corporation wrapped around the technical skills of accounting, investing, and markets can aid explosive growth. An individual with the knowledge of the tax advantages and protection provided by a corporation can get rich so much faster than someone who's an employee or a small business sole proprietor. It's like the difference between someone walking and someone flying. The difference is profound when it comes to long-term wealth. A corporation can do so many things that an individual cannot, like pay for expenses before it pays taxes. That is a whole area of expertise that is so exciting, but not necessary to get into unless you have sizable assets or a business. Employees earn and get taxed, and they try to live on what's left. A corporation earns, spends everything it can, and is taxed on anything that's left. It's one of the biggest legal tax loopholes that the rich use. They're easy to set up and are not expensive if you own investments that are producing good cash flow. For example, by owning your own corporation, car payments, insurance, repairs are company expenses. Most restaurant meals are partial expenses, and on and on. All are paid for legally with pre-tax dollars. Lesson 5. The Rich Invent Money I've been teaching professionally since 1984. It's been a great experience and rewarding. It's also a disturbing profession, for I've taught thousands of individuals, and I see one thing in common in all of us, myself included. 
We all have tremendous potential, and we are all blessed with gifts. Yet the one thing that holds all of us back is some degree of self-doubt. It's not so much the lack of technical information that holds us back, but more the lack of self-confidence. Some are more affected than others. Once we leave school, most of us know that it's not as much a matter of college degrees or good grades that count. In the real world, outside of academics, something more than just grades is required. I've heard it called guts, chutzpah, balls, audacity, bravado, cunning, daring, tenacity, and brilliance. This factor, whatever it's labeled, ultimately decides one's future much more than school grades. Inside each of us is one of these brave, brilliant, and daring characters. There's also the flip side of that character, people who could get down on their knees and beg if necessary. After a year in Vietnam as a Marine Corps pilot, I intimately got to know both of those characters inside of me. One is not better than the other. Yet as a teacher, I recognized that it was excessive fear and self-doubt that were the greatest detractors of personal genius. It broke my heart to see students know the answers, yet lack the courage to act on the answer. Often in the real world, it's not the smart that get ahead, but the bold. In my personal experience, your financial genius requires both technical knowledge as well as courage. If fear is too strong, the genius is suppressed. In my classes, I strongly urge students to learn to take risks, to be bold, to let their genius convert that fear into power and brilliance. It works for some and just terrifies others. I've come to realize that for most people, when it comes to the subject of money, they would rather play it safe. I've had to field questions such as, Why take risks? Why should I bother developing my financial IQ? Why should I become financially literate? And I answer, just to have more options. There are huge changes up ahead. There will be a hundred people like Bill Gates and hugely successful companies like Microsoft created every year all over the world. And there also will be many more bankruptcies, layoffs, and downsizing. So why bother developing your financial IQ? Because if you do, you will prosper greatly. And if you don't, this period of time will be a frightening one. Land was wealth 300 years ago. So the person who owned the land owned the wealth. Then it was factories and production. And America rose to dominance. The industrialists owned the wealth. Today, it's information. And the person who has the most timely information owns the wealth. The problem is, information flies all around the world at the speed of light. The new wealth cannot be contained by boundaries and borders as lands and factories were. The changes will be faster and more dramatic. There will be a dramatic increase in the number of new multimillionaires. There also will be those who are left behind. Today I find so many people struggling, often working harder, simply because they cling to old ideas. They want things to be the way they were. They resist change. I know people who are losing their jobs or their houses, and they blame technology or the economy or their boss. Sadly, they fail to realize that they might be the problem. 
Old ideas are their biggest liability. It's a liability simply because they fail to realize that while that idea or way of doing something was an asset yesterday, yesterday is gone. One afternoon I was teaching investing, using a game I'd invented, cash flow, as a teaching tool. A friend had brought someone along to attend the class. This friend of a friend was recently divorced, had been badly burned in the divorce settlement, and was now searching for some answers. Her friend thought the class might help. The game was designed to help people learn how money works. In playing the game, they learn about the interaction of the income statement with the balance sheet. They learn how cash flows between the two, and how the road to wealth is through striving to increase your monthly cash flow from the asset column to the point that it exceeds your monthly expenses. Once you accomplish this, you're able to get out of the rat race and onto the fast track. As I've said, some people hate the game, some love it, and others miss the point. This woman missed a valuable opportunity to learn something. In the opening round, she drew a doodad card with the boat on it. At first she was happy, oh, I've got the boat! Then as her friend tried to explain how the numbers worked on her income statement and balance sheet, she got frustrated because she had never liked math. The rest of her table waited while her friend continued explaining the relationship between the income statement, balance sheet, and monthly cash flow. Suddenly, when she realized how the numbers worked, it dawned on her that her boat was eating her alive. Later on in the game, she was also downsized and had a child. It was a horrible game for her. After the class, her friend came by and told me that she was upset. She'd come to the class to learn about investing and did not like the idea that it took so long to play a silly game. Her friend attempted to tell her to look within herself to see if the game reflected on herself in any way. With that suggestion, the woman demanded her money back. She said that the very idea that a game could be a reflection of her was ridiculous. Her money was promptly refunded, and she left. Since 1984, I have made millions simply by doing what the school system does not. In school, most teachers lecture. I hated lectures as a student. I was soon bored, and my mind would drift. In 1984, I began teaching via games and simulations. I always encouraged adult students to look at games as reflecting back to what they know and what they needed to learn. Most importantly, a game reflects back on one's behavior. It's an instant feedback system. Instead of the teacher lecturing you, the game is feeding back a personalized lecture, custom-made just for you. The friend of the woman who left later called to give me an update. She said her friend was fine and had calmed down. In her cooling-off period, she could see some relationships between the game and her life. Just like a board game, the world is always providing us with instant feedback. We could learn a lot if we tuned in more. One day, not long ago, I complained to my wife that the cleaners must have shrunk my pants. My wife gently smiled and poked me in the stomach to inform me that the pants had not shrunk. Something else had expanded. Me. The game Cash Flow was designed to give every player personal feedback. The purpose is to give you options. If you draw the boat card and it puts you into debt, 
The question is, now what can you do? How many different financial options can you come up with? That's the purpose of the game. To teach players to think and create new and various financial options. I've watched this game played by more than a thousand people. The people who get out of the rat race in the game the quickest are the people who understand numbers and have creative financial minds. They recognize different financial options. People who take the longest are people who aren't familiar with numbers and often do not understand the power of investing. Rich people are often creative and take calculated risks. There have been people playing cash flow who gain lots of money in the game, but they don't know what to do with it. Most of them have not been financially successful in real life either. Everyone else seems to be getting ahead of them, even though they have money. And that's true in real life. There are a lot of people who have a lot of money and do not get ahead financially. Limiting your options is the same as hanging on to old ideas. I have a friend from high school who now works at three jobs. Twenty years ago, he was the richest of all my classmates. When the local sugar plantation closed, the company he worked for went down with the plantation. In his mind, he had but one option, and that was the old option work hard. The problem was, he couldn't find an equivalent job that recognized his seniority in the old company. As a result, he's overqualified for the jobs he currently has, so his salary is lower. He now works three jobs to earn enough to survive. I've watched people playing cash flow complaining that the right opportunity cards are not coming their way, so they sit there. I know people who do that in real life, they wait for the right opportunity. I've watched people get the right opportunity card and then not have enough money. Then they complain they would have gotten out of the rat race if they'd had more money. So they sit there. I know people in real life who do that also. They see all the great deals, but they have no money. And I have people pull a great opportunity card, read it out loud, and have no idea that it's a great opportunity. They have the money, the time is right, they have the card, but they can't see the opportunity staring at them. They fail to see how it fits into their financial plan for escaping the rat race. And I know more people like that than all the others combined. Most people have an opportunity of a lifetime flash right in front of them, and they fail to see it. A year later, they find out about it after everyone else got rich. Financial intelligence is simply having more options. If the opportunities aren't coming your way, what else can you do to improve your financial position? If an opportunity lands in your lap and you have no money and the bank won't talk to you, what else can you do to get the opportunity to work in your favor? If your hunch is wrong and what you've been counting on doesn't happen, how can you turn a lemon into millions? That is financial intelligence. It's not so much what happens, but how many different financial solutions you can think of to turn a lemon into millions. It's how creative you are in solving financial problems. Most people only know one solution. Work hard, save, and borrow. So why would you want to increase your financial intelligence? Because you want to be the kind of person who creates your own luck. You can take whatever happens 
and make it better. Few people realize that luck is created, just as money is. And if you want to be luckier and create money instead of working hard, then your financial intelligence is important. If you're the kind of person who's waiting for the right thing to happen, you might wait for a long time. It's like waiting for all the traffic lights to be green for five miles before starting the trip. As young boys, Mike and I were constantly told by my rich dad that money is not real. Rich Dad occasionally reminded us of how close we came to the secret of money on that first day we got together and began making money out of plaster of Paris. The poor and middle class work for money, he would say. The rich make money. The more real you think money is, the harder you will work for it. If you can grasp the idea that money is not real, you will grow richer faster. What is it? was a question Mike and I often came back with. What is money if it's not real? What we agree it is, was all Rich Dad would say. The single most powerful asset we all have is our mind. If it's trained well, it can create enormous wealth in what seems to be an instant. I'll give you a simple example of creating money. In the early 1990s, the economy of Phoenix was horrible. I was watching the TV show Good Morning America when a financial planner came on and began forecasting doom and gloom. His advice was to save money. Put $100 away every month, he said, and in 40 years you will be a multimillionaire. While putting money away every month is a sound idea, it is one option, the option most people subscribe to. The problem is this. It blinds the person from what's really going on. They miss major opportunities for much more significant growth of their money. The world is passing them by. As I said, the economy was terrible at that time. For investors, this is the perfect market condition. A chunk of my money was in the stock market and in apartment houses. I was short of cash. Because everyone was giving stuff away, I was buying. I was not saving money. I was investing. My wife and I had more than a million dollars in cash working in a market that was rising fast. It was the best opportunity to invest. The economy was terrible. I just could not pass up these small deals. Houses that were once $100,000 were now $75,000. But instead of shopping at the local real estate office, I began shopping at the bankruptcy attorney's office or the courthouse steps. In these shopping places, a $75,000 house could sometimes be bought for $20,000 or less. For $2,000, which was loaned to me from a friend for 90 days for $200, I gave an attorney a cashier's check as a down payment. While the acquisition was being processed, I ran an ad in the paper advertising a $75,000 house for only $60,000 and no money down. The phone rang hard and heavy. Prospective buyers were screened, and once the property was legally mine, all the prospective buyers were allowed to look at the house. It was a feeding frenzy. The house sold in a few minutes. I asked for a $2,500 processing fee, which they gladly handed over, and the escrow and title company took over from there. I returned the $2,000 to my friend with an additional $200. He was happy. 
The home buyer was happy, the attorney was happy, and I was happy. I'd sold a house for sixty thousand that cost me twenty thousand. The forty thousand was created from money in my asset column, in the form of a promissory note from the buyer. Total working time, five hours. During this depressed market, my wife and I were able to do six of these simple transactions in our spare time. While the bulk of our money was in larger properties in the stock market, we were able to create more than a hundred and ninety thousand dollars in assets. Notes at ten percent interest in those six buy, create, and sell transactions. That comes to approximately nineteen thousand dollars a year income. Much of it sheltered through our private corporation. Much of that nineteen thousand a year goes to pay for our company cars, gas, trips, insurance, dinners with clients, and other things. By the time the government gets a chance to tax that income, it's been spent on legally allowed pre-tax expenses. This was a simple example of how money is invented, created, and protected using financial intelligence. Ask yourself how long it would take to save one hundred and ninety thousand dollars. Would the bank pay you ten percent interest on your money, and the note is good for thirty years? I hope they never pay me the one hundred and ninety thousand. I have to pay a tax if they pay me the principal, and besides, nineteen thousand paid over thirty years. Is a little over five hundred thousand in income. The math is simple. You don't need algebra or calculus. I don't write much because the escrow company handles the legal transaction and the servicing of the payments. I have no roofs to fix or toilets to unplug because the owners do that. It's their house. Occasionally, someone does not pay, and that's wonderful because there are late fees, or they move out and the property is sold again. The court system handles that, and it may not work in your area. The market conditions may be different, but the example illustrates how a simple financial process can create hundreds of thousands of dollars with little money and low risk. It's an example of money being only an agreement. Anyone with a high school education can do it. Yet most people won't. Most people listen to the standard advice. Of work hard and save money. For about thirty hours of work, approximately a hundred and ninety thousand dollars was created in the asset column, and no taxes were paid. Now you may understand why I silently shake my head when I hear parents say, "My child is doing well in school and receiving a good education." It may be good, but is it adequate? I know the above investment strategy is a small one. It's used to illustrate how small can grow into big. My success reflects the importance of a strong financial foundation, which starts with strong financial education. Financial intelligence is made up of these four main technical skills. Number one, financial literacy, the ability to read numbers. Number two, investment strategies. The science of money making money. Number three, the market, supply and demand. Alexander Graham Bell gave the market what it wanted, and AT and T was born. So did Bill Gates. A seventy-five thousand dollar house offered for sixty thousand that cost twenty thousand was also the result of seizing an opportunity created by the market. Somebody was buying, and someone was selling. 
Number four, the law. The awareness of accounting, corporate, state, and national rules and regulations. I recommend playing within the rules. It's this basic foundation, or the combination of these skills, that's needed to be successful in the pursuit of wealth. Whether it be through the buying of small homes, large apartments, companies, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, precious metals, baseball cards, or the like. Personally, I use two main vehicles to achieve financial growth: real estate and small stocks. I use real estate as my foundation. Day in and day out, my properties provide cash flow and occasional spurts of growth in value. The small cap stocks are used for fast growth. I do not recommend anything that I do. The examples are just that—example.